You're listening to Connecting the Universe from Mike Ricksecker and ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Welcome, everybody, to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker back at you with another interactive class out of the secret library of the Connected Universe. Tonight, we're going to be talking about time in the simulation. What is time? Of course, you guys know me. I say time doesn't really exist in the simulation. We've talked simulated universe before. So how do these two things relate to each other? Yes, part of my new book. That's going to be coming out here a little bit later this year. Travels through time. Um, getting so close to having that finished. Oh, yeah. Uh, sequestered myself into, um, well, my house <laughs> this past weekend. But I cut off social media over this past weekend to really knock a lot of things out. And um, so let's get to this. Uh, those First off, those listening to the podcast version later, please join us every Wednesday night. I know it's a Tuesday we're doing this live tonight. That's because of my schedule this week. Uh, but please join us every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time for the full Connecting the Universe experience at ConnectedUniversePortal.com. 30-day free trial, but gives you access to the weekly, the weekly Connecting the Universe interactive class, sneak peek behind the scenes videos, monthly Q&A videos just posted 25-minute Q&A video yesterday. Uh, exclusive articles, insider travel blogs, including, or vlogs. I always have blogs right here, but it's vlogs because it's those videos. Ancient Egypt, America, Southwest, Ireland, and more. All this at ConnectedUniversePortal.com. By the way, those who are members, get the app. Uh, you can get the notifications right to your phone. You can interact right there uh, through the app and uh, let you know, hey, when we're doing stuff, we're going live, all that fun stuff. And we have done... Uh, some live mic uh, morning mugs videos there uh, within the portal as well. So do want to let you know, uh, I have several events coming up here. Uh, Parasycon in uh, Mansfield, Ohio, that is uh, May 20th and 21st, Ohio State Reformatory. Uh, come by the table there. Also the uh, Bell Mansion event, that's the Connecting the Universe official event. Uh, it's Basically, a uh, full day of presentations, getting into esoteric knowledge and wisdom. Uh, wonderful haunted location, too. So, uh, real treat there. Bell Mansion, June 10th, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then, of course, next year, Egypt. We are going back. Stargates of Ancient Egypt Tour 2. Uh, you can find all this information out on my website, MikeRickSegger.com, in the events and tours section. So, all right. Now, without further ado... Let's go ahead and get into it. Okay, what is a simulation? I just rocked the table here. 
simulated that. <laughs> so we have talked about this before within the class, but for those who are new, simulation, what are we talking about here? Oh, no, there's matrix stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of times when we talk like simulated universe, many of us immediately think of the matrix, which is you know a simulated uh, environment of the late 20th century. We'll get into that a little bit more as we go along. And I do have, I throw this out there just because it kind of validates what I'm talking about, I guess. Um, I do have a degree in simulation programming. So, I mean, I've been involved with computers ever since I was a little kid, uh, professionally for the past 30 years, more than now. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, whew, dating myself here. In any case, so what exactly is this thing that uh, we call a simulation? While I do have uh, a degree in simulation programming, I'm actually going to defer, and I do this in my uh, Walk in the Shadows book when I uh, have the Shadows in the Matrix chapter, which talks about, okay, if we are living in a simulated universe, what would a shadow person be within that but of course, I have to first define exactly what are we talking about when we're talking simulation, simulated universe, all that sort of thing. So I'm grabbing this from Greg Braden. Uh, he is a best-selling author of consciousness literature and a lot of shows there in Gaia. I did on the uh, Connected Universe portal description, I did go ahead and put a link to uh, Gaia in there where you can find all of his stuff. Um, got tons of material on there, but his one specific show, Miss, Missing Links, uh, dives into this. And he actually uh, has a background in technology as well. He uh, became the first technical operations manager for Cisco Systems in 1991. So that was basically, uh, what, maybe a year before I actually started working on Cisco routers up in Alaska. But he was also a 2020 nominee for the prestigious Templeton Award, which was established to honor outstanding individuals who have devoted their talents to expanding our vision of human purpose and reality. So those are his credentials. Um, I, I do highly recommend following him and, and uh, checking out his stuff. But he states in the episode, evidence of our simulated reality. He says, a simulation is an experience that allows us to immerse ourselves in an unfamiliar environment first. And second, it allows us to master the parameters of that environment in a relatively safe way while minimizing the risk of injury to ourselves or to one another. So really, you know, think of, think of simulation. Now this could be, we immediately think of like, okay, video game environment. You know, the Sims is a perfect uh, illustration of that where it is a simulated life. But really, um, you know, we have flight simulators where people train. Um, there's even for like driving and things like this, we use simulations in a lot of different capacities, not just uh, online gaming, military especially uses uh, you know a lot of different simulation and training environments. Uh, but we see these all throughout, um, you know, all throughout our sciences. You know, we put together simulation models of um, you know different natural events that could happen, you know, flooding, earthquakes, uh, volcanoes. What would happen if uh, you know this went off? And you know, so the computer simulates. You know, what would happen if the earthquake hit here or a volcano uh, erupted over there? What might that look like? And what it'll do is it'll run it through thousands of times and you kind of end up picking the averages of, well, you know, we, we ran this simulation a thousand times, you know, 
this is you know, sometimes it destroyed the whole world. Sometimes it was just a little bit uh, of damage. But on average, here's what happened. And they do this in sports too. Uh, they'll they'll run through um, you know seasons worth of you know if this team had this lineup and that team had lineup and you know the season was you know this schedule you know how would it turn out? And that's where people end up using that for sports betting, but we're not going down that route. Uh, any case, so this is the idea of what a simulation is. But let's take this a little bit further. So something that strikes me about his statement is mastering parameters. And this is something that we hear a lot when we talk reincarnation or when different belief systems talk about reincarnation. They often state that we come down to this world to learn a lesson or a series of lessons. We keep returning lifetime after lifetime to learn more and more lesson after lesson until we ascend to some higher level of consciousness, which again, really sounds like mastering the parameters to me that, you know, if we are learning something and that's part of what you know, the simulation environment is, if you take again, like a flight simulator or something like that, um, you know, you're trying to master those parameters within that environment. Well, that's what we talk about when we talk reincarnation in this, the recurring cycle. We come down here, we learn some lessons, go back up, come down again, learn some lessons, go back in this again and again and again. It's like you're rebooting the program every time or you're reinserting your character into the program uh, every single time. Of course, this is supposed to be time in the simulation. We'll get to the time uh, aspect in just a moment. So Sarah asks, if a simulation is considered practice, does that mean there is a true reality that the simulation is mimicking? Many religions promote the idea of alternate realities, such as heaven, etc. So this is where we could get into um, like the her hermetic philosophy of as above, so below. That this is a mirror image of whatever is above. That I call it the kind of quote-unquote homeworld or where the simulation is being run from. People call it heaven. Some people call it the afterlife, whatever. If you look at, and I should have uh, should have known this question was going to come up, and I should have provided the uh, the illustration. But actually, if you look behind me on the wall, if I can move my finger the right direction, um, you have here it is, as above, so below, right there on the corkboard. The interesting thing about that is the below part is not in as clear of focus. It's a little bit darker. It's a little bit more muddled. It's a little blurrier. It's not as pristine as the above part. So yes, it is to a degree supposed to be mimicking whatever is the quote unquote above. Um, but it's not as clear of an image. It's not as good of an environment. And, you know, it could adhere to the whole idea that, okay, we're down here learning something. And in order to learn something, we need to be in an environment that is not perfect, that, you know, has its flaws. And so, you know, that's what we see in that image as above, so below, but not perfectly. 
All right, so I'm going to continue on a little bit with, uh, with some of Braden's comments here on this. So here's here's Greg again. So he says, the characteristics of a simulated world, simulation has a place where it begins, a definite beginning, and it has a place where it ends. And what happens in between that beginning and the ending is based on a mathematic algorithm, a rhythm of cycles in patterns that repeat again and again and again on different scales. In a simulation, there are rules that govern the simulation. And the idea is that as the people in the simulation become more familiar with the environment, as they learn those rules, life gets better. They improve with practice. In the simulation, the users always have access to an external reality that they can tap into for guidance if they get into trouble or if they need clarification. They always have the ability to communicate beyond the simulation itself. And in a simulation, the user cannot tell the simulation from the real world. So let's kind of dissect that a little bit, uh, the, the end part there. Let's kind of explain how simulation works. But the idea that there is always access for, for help, for clarification, that sort of thing. So if you're in a, here you go, like a, a computer game environment, this was the Matrix Online many years ago. Um, if there was a problem within that environment, like if I got stuck, if uh, something was glitching out, uh, some sort of issue, uh, or even if, you know, just general feedback, hey, I think that this uh, level was was dumb or whatever, um, I could access, I could just type in slash help. And that would bring me to a help screen. I could uh, contact somebody, contact customer support, that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, so is true of other type of simulation environments. If you have some sort of issue with the simulation, you can reach out to customer support file a complaint, get some assistance, that sort of thing. Okay, so what do we have here? In Braden's thing, he has a lot of, um, there's a lot of material on prayer, manifestation, this sort of thing. So this is the idea of, sure, you could be praying to a deity. Spirit guides, uh, you know, that sort of thing, where you are looking for, uh, help outside of the physical to try to ask for help. You know, hey, guides, what do I need to do here? You know, tarot cards, you know, we'll whip out the cards and we'll see what they have to say. You know, you're looking for some sort of uh, external guidance to to help you within here. Um, so, you know, not, it's, it's basically um, our version here uh, within the reality as we know it that you could simulate a computer and I don't believe that we're in a computer environment and uh in in the book that that I'm writing and I and I say this in a walk in the shadows as well in, in that particular chapter I don't believe we're in a computer as we know it to be I think it's something that's more biological and organic uh, we always kind of revert to well it must be you know, whatever our highest concept of technology is at that time. So th that must be it, because that's as far as our imagination has gone. And in my notes, I think we do touch on that uh, a little bit there. And yeah, yeah, Sarah, um, asking for divine help is like asking for user mod help. Yep, absolutely. 
exactly what we're talking about here. Okay. So let's get into a little bit of the technology aspect of it. I'm not going to go too techy on you. I know there have been times where I've actually thrown computer code at you guys um, and, and things like that. I'm not going down that route. Um, there was a couple of weeks in a row there. I was throwing math at you guys. No, we're not doing that. Um, but we are going to talk a little bit about like digital consciousness sort of thing. Um, this is from quote from tech, technological, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, cosmologist, theoretical physicist, and mathematician John D. Barrow. He says, it has long been recognized that technological civilizations only a little more advanced than ours will have the capacity to simulate universes in which self-conscious entities can emerge and communicate with one another. So he may very well be describing the universe which we're already experiencing, created by something far more advanced than we can really currently perceive whether that's a civilization of higher technology or being or beings of expanded consciousness, uh, it's kind of beyond our comprehension. We have a lot of different um, ideas about what that might be. We talk about God, we talk about uh, the universe, we talk about energy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different beliefs as far as what that really is, you know, a higher power, higher beings, higher self. Um, Notice it's always higher, you know, as above. Um, but we don't know, nobody really truly knows what that is. Um, and this is kind of like one of the great debates of our, of our world is, what is that? And then there are those that just believe we become, be, we become worm food, but um, that's, that's, uh, that's a tale for another day. <laughs> Carl Young once stated, the real picture consists of nothing but exceptions to the rule. Therefore, absolute reality has predominantly the character character of irregular. Can't even speak. The character of irregularity. So let me read that again. Absolute reality has predominantly the character of irregularity. It's too many L Ys, young G's. Predominantly the character of irregularity. Here, I'm done. <laughs> irregularity this is like an engine nose down there me trying to say documentary there are some words or letter combinations that my tongue just stumbles over irregularity try one more time <laughs> absolute reality has predominantly the character of irregularity there we go <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I threw up a tree here on the screen. Why did I do that? And for those listening to the podcast later, please join us, connecteduniverseportal.com. You can get the slideshow here too. All right. There's something within the human subconscious that inherently knows there is variety to life and quite a degree of unpredictability. This is why no tree... This is a, this is a snippet out of my book. It's still, that's why I'm stumbling over it. It's why no tree, even though it may be of the same genus and species, and may have sprouted at the same time in the same conditions right next to another, will ever look truly identical to the other trees of its kind. Variety is the spice of life, but really it is the truth of life. It constantly bends and breaks the rules. So, you know, here's a couple of trees that we're looking at, grown right next to each other in the same environment. 
they grew very differently. I mean, you know, one's a little bigger than the other. You can tell that they're the same type of tree, you know, branches kind of sprout in similar ways. The leaves are the same, but the way the branches <laughs> branched out uh, are different. Uh, the way the trunk grew is different, that they're never going to be exactly the same. Here's a couple more here too. What's interesting is in simulation environments, uh, one of the things that computer programmers will do is called seeding. And basically what that means is they're given a set of parameters for, and we could just take a tree like this if, if we're putting trees into a simulation environment because they don't want them to look exactly the same. They want them to look realistic. Um, you know, 25, 30 years ago, this was a little more difficult and, you know, you would have ka-chunk, 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 the same graphic thrown down because they just didn't have the computing power back then, the graphics power to really handle that sort of thing. But these days they do. And so have a number of different parameters could be, um, could be based on density of leaves, could be based on, you know, how old the, the tree is, um, you know, branch density, this sort of thing. And they'll put in some different numbers, like one through a thousand and that, and whatever that number is, is the seed. And then the computer will just, you know, build a, um, a tree based on that. And so you would have each of these trees seeded a little bit differently. Um, and so that would create randomness within the world because there's something that humans inherently know that there is not out in nature, everything is not going to look perfectly exactly the same. It may look similar, but not everything is exactly perfectly the same. When that happens, it's like something's wrong. Something's off here, and that breaks the simulation environment. Um, it's interesting in the, the movie The Matrix when the, uh, the architect was explaining to Neo the different versions of, uh, of The Matrix, the previous ones. And he says, you know, the first one that I built was an absolute pristine, perfect world. But nobody would believe it. You know, it's like we need this variety. We need these differences in order to actually believe things are real. Comments coming in down here. <laughs> you guys are laughing over me, stumbling over my words. Yes, I did it. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, uh, okay. And, uh, Sarah, do you think that AI will eventually break the consciousness code? Uh, good question. You had a similar question during the AI class that we did a few weeks back. Um, you know, will AI have empathy? And I did address it in that class. And I actually, for the monthly Q and a video, I touched on it there as well. Um, so if you haven't watched it, go ahead and, and give it a peek, but I will go ahead. And since you asked, uh, we'll touch on it here. And that is, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to really know. And the reason why I say that is because you can program a computer to respond in kind to emotional moments. So, um, if I got in a car accident, I said, hey, you know, I won't say her name, the A, the A person over here. That sounds like Alex. Um, you know, if I said I got into a, you know, a car accident, 
then the computer could be programmed based on that information to say, you know, oh, I'm sorry to hear you got in an accident. Are you hurt? Which basically shows some empathy. You know, my, uh, you know, you know, my ancestor, my, um, I don't know, aunt, uncle, whomever uh, passed away. Um, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, my condolences to you, that sort of thing. And so we can program a computer to respond to, you know, those type of statements. Is that showing empathy? No, no. Um, it's, it's a, it's a part of the programming. So it's, there are some lines that can be blurred here. They're going to be blurred here at some point. Um, the television show Westworld really kind of hit on this pretty well in that the, the robots had gotten so adept at being able to recognize and respond to emotion that it was becoming harder and harder to tell if they were real or if they were uh, still a, a robot with artificial intelligence. And so it you know, kind of makes you ask that question, where does consciousness really come into play here? So I think we're going to be challenged on that in the future. It's going to be an ethics question uh, that comes up somewhere down the road when we, you know, have an, an AI really well established that seems completely real. Well, how will we really know? Because somebody programmed it to respond like that. So yeah, it's going to be difficult when that happens. So, all right, let's, um, Let's move on a little bit here. We do have to ask, what powers the simulation? What is behind it? So consider there is a quote-unquote real world outside of our own, far beyond the dimensional boundaries of the physical universe. Might not be a computer, but there is some sort of mechanism that we don't quite understand, which has brought our consciousness into this world and there's really no shame in that lack of understanding as far as you know what it is uh that did that you know we're, we're still we've been trying to figure this out for for thousands of years right but take for example okay tesla nikola tesla he perfectly conceptualized conceptualized where his automaton was heading. The automaton was basically a drone that he created. It was a tiny submarine that he was able to uh, control with, with radio waves. Far ahead of its time. And he basically surmised that this thing, um, you know, really was going to become an artificial intelligence. He didn't use that word back then. But this is a, a, essentially where he was going with it. He just... In his day, it was, you know, gears and radio waves and moving parts. He didn't know about the silicon microchip back at that time. The technology that we have today would actually be the backbone of whether it's a simulation, whether it's uh, electronic devices, but he knew enough that these things were going to happen. So the fact that we don't know what it is that, you know, powers the simulation, what has made our consciousness able to access this world? You know, 
a lot of our ideas talk computers these days, and I don't think that's it. You know, again, you know, back in his day, Tesla was like, yeah, it's going to be, you know, gears and, uh, you, know, you know, electric power. Sure, you guess he got that part, um, but he didn't have the microchip back then, and that's what we have going on today. So I think it's something far, far more advanced. So nothing that Tesla threw out here. We did kind of touch on this stuff um, some weeks back. They did believe that our lives were controlled from an external source. You could say jacked into the matrix, so to speak. And this was a concept that we really didn't develop for, you know, really a hundred years after he was, uh, you know, after he first proposed these ideas and it became a pop culture sensation, of course, in 99. Um, this is what he said about, AI. He, he kind of conceptualized robots, conceptualized AI, artificial intelligence. But this was back at a time where they were talking automatons. So he says, long ago, I conceived the idea of constructing an automaton which would mechanically represent me and which would respond as I do myself. Such an automaton evidently had to have motive power, organs for locomotion, directive organs, and one or more sensitive organs so adapted as to be excited by external stimuli. Whether the automaton be of flesh and bone or of wood and steel, it mattered little, provided it could provide all the duties required of it like an intelligent being. So he's talking a robot with AI here. He just you know, couldn't see ahead enough for what that really looks like today. But he was far, far ahead of his peers. His peers couldn't even imagine that. So just the fact that he was imagining imagining it 100 years ahead of his time was is absolutely fascinating. Um, but yeah, everybody, and it, it's a shame. Um, he was basically you know, laughed at by his peers for these ideas, and he had a hard time getting funding because, you know, they're all, um, you know, working a few miles in radio and he's like i got that figured out we're going to do stuff all the way around the world and they're in just that they're like what are you talking about no 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 no. that's that's too ambitious it's too big no what, what do you mean the whole world no of course years later what do we have um you know we have we could talk to anybody across the world and that's what those are the things that he would talk about it's like you you'll be able to you know you know pick up a uh, transceiver and be able to communicate instantly to the other side of the world. Now, what are you talking about? Yep, we do that today. So many things. All right, moving on. So, okay, if we're if we're jacking into the matrix, if we're uh, entering into the simulation, what are we entering in with? Okay, our consciousness, and you know, for some years now science has not been able to quantify the consciousness which is why we have so many people think that we're just warm food these days you know that we we live we die and that's it um but you've had you know religion and spirituality and you know customs from cultures all over the world for thousands and thousands of years telling us that no there's you know, there's a soul, there's a consciousness, or there's multiple parts of the soul, depending on uh, the belief system. And it's like when science finally started taking over, they kind of 
push that away, push that away, push that away. Cause there was that, there was that massive divide back in history. Um, and really it's the, the religious zealots that kind of ruined it. I mean, they, they, they work hand in hand really, in my opinion. Um, but you had the re- religious zealots that would just, I mean, literally assassinate these people for, uh, you know, having some scientific beliefs. So, Naturally, of course, once the science the, the science starts to take over, they're going to you know, push away. Maybe not necessarily assassinate, but at least push away. Uh, you know, those from religion, spirituality. It's like, guys, can, can we work together here? Some finally are starting to mesh these two together, and so uh, we talked about this at one point in time. Uh, an article that came out here. And actually the idea has been around for a while, but as more tests are being done and as more research comes to light, it gets modified a little bit. But essentially researchers suggest the human soul doesn't die, returns to the universe, returns to the source is uh, the, the matrix term for it. So in an update to their quantum theory of consciousness, Stuart Hameroff, an American physicist in emeritus in the Department of Anesthesiology in psychology and sir roger penrose a mathematical physicist at oxford university i need to put uh hammer off some because this is a uh, direct quote out of my book i need to put his school darn it but basically they've meshed together science and spirituality likening the human consciousness to a software program activated by the bio quantum computer inside the brain, which continues to exist after death and returns to the cosmos. While this theory was originally proposed in 1996, the 2014 update states that quantum information within microtubules in the cells of the brain can't be destroyed, and it just distributes and dissipates to the universe at large. So, again, they really don't define where in the universe, where in the cosmos it goes, but they do say it has to go somewhere. And so this is that idea. We talk, you know, connected universe, right? A connected universe. Um, everything's connected. It's all out there. Um, you know, could it be when we talk as above, so below, the home world, when we pass away, that sort of thing? Yeah, that, that could absolutely be it. Now, if it goes beyond the cosmos to another level, another dimension, uh, outside of our uh, known universe, then that would also, of course, take it outside of time, which is where all this is kind of getting to. You know, this is time in the simulation. How do those things work together? And when we go down into stack time theory, of course, we start talking about um, you know all time is working concurrently, you know, past, present, future, and somebody that's outside of that, somebody that is outside the simulation would be able to see the entire simulation at the same time. They would know the beginning. They would know the end. They would know all those steps in between. Now, maybe how they get from point A to point B is a little bit different, and that might kind of change the path a little bit. But we know where the program starts, and we know where the program ends, and we know a lot of the main points in between. And I believe... As we're able to kind of move up and down the stack, we're able to change some of the things because the question always comes up. Okay, so if it's if everything's always there, 
what happens with free will. And I think that's when some of these unusual things will start to happen, like a deja vu or like a Mandela effect or something like that. Something's off. Something's okay. Something just isn't quite right here. Something doesn't jive. Um, you know, a, a memory might change a very, very distinct memory might change. Or you go to that place where that memory is at and everything is like gone or completely different. It's like, what in the world happened here? Um, so we go back to like the matrix and they have what they got a quote unquote glitch in the matrix. That's when the, the machines, the programmers, the architects of the matrix have changed something. And, uh, we see, you know, like the same cat move back and forth. They've added, uh, you know, bricks to the, uh, windows when they had previously been open, stuff like that. You know, all of a sudden something will suddenly change and it will look as if it's always been there. Uh, so th those sorts of things. This also extends to not just us. Again, we're all connected. Also extends to the planet. And I liked this one. So team working on this. Astrobiologists suggest the Earth itself may be an intelligent entity. Uh, team working on this published a paper exploring this question in the International Journal of Astrobiology. In it, they present the idea of planetary intelligence, which describes the collective knowledge and cognition of an entire planet. Here's the abstract of it. They say, in this paper, however, we wish to broaden the view of intelligence by taking a planetary view of its appearance and effect. Here we consider the ways in which the appearance of technological intelligence may represent a kind of planetary transition. In this way, it might be seen not as something which happens on a planet, but to a planet. Our approach follows the recognition among researchers that the correct scale to understand key aspects of life and evolution is planetary, as opposed to the traditional focus on individual species. A little bit of a mouthful, um, but basically uh, the connectedness of, of everything within the planet. Um, and of course, this extends out to the universe. I think you know, keeping it small scale right now, let's, let's work on the planet right now. We'll expand out to the universe. But, um, you know, it's that symbiotic you know, relationship. You know, what happens to one happens to the other. It might happen a little differently, but it will affect, uh, you know, the other beings and the other entities on the planet. So everything is very much all connected. There is a you know, consciousness that is existing amongst all of these things. Um, you know, imagine going outside and suddenly there's no birds. You don't hear any birds. You know, that, that would be very disconcerting, actually. If you think about that, dead silence when you walk outside, when you're expecting, you know, where, where's all the animals, right? Um, so there's a, so there's a relationship there, even though it might be on a very minor level, everything is still all connected. And that's, of course, you know, what we see here with the connected universe. And you guys know I love this photo from uh, the Chandra X-ray, uh, which basically took a, uh, it took an X-ray, it's an X-ray telescope, it took an X-ray uh, shot of the, uh, of the universe. And, you know, all of those yellow dots there are galaxies. And you can see the filaments of gases connecting all of them together. So they are all connecting. What's interesting about that this here is neural network of the brain. 
So it kind of makes you wonder, are we inside of a giant brain or at least something that may work a little similar? Uh, it's possible. Possible. Basically, what we're getting at here is that there is a world beyond our basic five sensory perception, some realm or dimension that has created this one, this world, as some type of simulation. In that world outside of us, uh, since, of course, this is a work on time, would not experience our concept of time in the same manner as this material plane of existence. Yes, I'm reading from my new book again. <laughs> uh, giving you guys a little taste of it here, really. So the rules of the simulation govern the simulation environment and not the world from which a simulation is run. So basically, think of all the fantastical things you can do in a video game that you can't do in real life. You know, the rules within the simulation pertain, pertain to the simulation itself. And you can make it do all kinds of crazy things that you wanted to, or you can make it do a whole lot of nothing. But it's separate from what you can do here in the world. Um, but usually, you try to make it, you know, as similar as you can, you know, running, jumping, walking around, you might enhance that a little bit because if you're like with a game environment, you know, maybe you want it, your characters to jump far or high or, uh, you know, hit bricks that turn into mushrooms or, or what have you. Um, but likewise, our extra dimensional home world, you know, that as above, whatever you want to call it, our extra dimensional home world operates on a different set of rules than this one. And that includes time, which is what we were talking about a little bit earlier. All right. Let's talk about Socrates here for a moment. Actually, let me see if you, what you guys have for comments here first. Um, so, Sarah says, since the information was initially stored in microtubules, in theory, there should be a method of recapture. So there is. There is. And it's kind of beyond our conversation for today. We have talked about it before. Um, collective unconscious. Um, we talk about um, you know people capturing information that's Kind of floating out there. Why do some people, like we've seen this with in inventors over the years, all of a sudden there's like five guys trying to invent a light bulb. Well, where did this idea of let's try, suddenly try to invent a light bulb come from? Um, you know, all of a sudden, all these people are trying to do the same thing at the same time. Why is that? Um, we'll get into that a little bit more um, in another discussion. We explore consciousness again we have talked about that before when we've explored consciousness um but yes there is information out there that you can access and the akashic records would you know or, or something that's a part of that as well that's free floating and out there so basically okay let's say your consciousness goes back to the universe all the knowledge that you picked up along the way um is is also out there and in in to a degree because we are all connected we're all able to share that knowledge to a degree as well, which is why I think sometimes you have a lot of people that are strangely simultaneously working on different things or working on the same thing at the same time. So, but that's a, that's a consciousness discussion. 
We'll get into that uh, again one of these days. So uh, Socrates, he has uh, he has this uh, it's a cyclical argument is what they call it. And so this is basically his examination of the universe using duality again as above so below within the natural world to make a case for reincarnation and the recycling of life. That just as the souls of those in the underworld come from those who are living in this world, living souls must come back from those who had previously been dead. So we're going to run through these real quick. There's uh, five points that he has here. One, all things come to be from their opposite states. For example, something that comes to be larger must necessarily have been smaller before. So if you're getting larger, you had to have once been small, uh, or at least smaller than you once were. So two, between every pair of opposite states, there are two opposite processes. For example, between the pair smaller and larger, there are the processes of increase and decrease. Three, if the two opposite processes did not balance each other out, everything would eventually be in the same state. For example, if increase did not balance out decrease, everything would keep becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, like you know, incredible shrinking woman sort of thing. And on and on and on and on. Of course, um, you never get to zero. If you keep cutting in half, cutting in half, cutting in half, cutting in half, um, you never do get to zero. But, um, you know, it, it doesn't ever balance out either. Four, since being alive and being dead are opposite states, and dying and coming to life are the two opposite processes between these states, coming to life must balance out dying and then five therefore everything that dies must come back to life so it's a um you could say one i mean mo one can make a case yeah it's an interesting uh twist on words and we we explored that before um a few weeks back when we talked about cheese remember that we talked about the, the cheese paradox. It's basically our, our paradox uh, class. And it's using the transitive uh, property. I'm throwing math at you guys again. So it's a trans, uh, transitive mathematical property. You know, if A equals B, then, you know, C equals, and on and on. And the reason why it became such a paradox when we talked about cheese, which basically, you know, took... Uh, uh, more cheese equals less cheese is because in our minds, we're like, that doesn't make any sense. How can more cheese be less cheese? But mathematically, it worked out that way. And that's what's going on here with, um, with Socrates as well. This is basically, um, you know, that mathematical paradox that we had with the cheese that we're actually seeing here in his cyclical argument. He's using it between dying and coming back to life. If one dies, one must come back to life. And so, um, you know, if we are talking simulation that is based on a set of principles, and again, not necessarily computer, but everything in nature is is based on math. When you look at, um, you know, the golden ratio, phi, uh, you know, which you know, we see in our Nautilus shells and we see in you know, all kinds of different aspects of nature um if we're talking you know math here encoded into nature then 
then this makes complete sense. It's something that is mathematically uh, embedded into us. So then therefore, mathematically, there has to be this place in the cosmos that that we go to, which again, would be like the home world of the simulation. All right, Aristotle. We're, we're hitting the big guys from Greek philosophy. So again, we're taking this back to time. And Aristotle states, uh, the following considerations would make one suspect that time either does not exist at all or barely or and in an obscure way. He wasn't a believer in absolute time, but more along the lines of what we would call, quote unquote, relative lie, time, relative time, which is what Einstein in his special theory of relativity defined as the rate at which time passes depending on your frame of reference. What we know of time, this is according to Aristotle, what we know of time is now, the present, and, according to Aristotle, the now is the link of time, as has been said, for it connects past and future time. And it is a limit of time, for it is the beginning of one and the end of the other. So it's a little wordy there. He's just trying to hash it out. And actually, if you read this, it's his um, book on physics. You can kind of hear the gears grinding as he's trying to kind of mesh through this. Okay, if, if time is this and now is that, and you know, how does all of this, he's working through it. It's like he's working through it as he's writing it. Um, let's continue on a, a little bit here. Um, so in the ancient world, celestial bodies such as sun, moon, stars, that provided a way for humanity to negotiate the numbers for keeping track of time. So Aristotle observed here, if there were more heavens than one, the movement of any of them equally would be time, so that there would be many times at the same time. And I remember when I threw this one at you guys uh, sometime last year, yeah, the idea of many times at the same time. This was back during our real time travel class. So we're seeing a concept of layering time, much like we do um, when we talk about stack time theory. So Aristotle not only allows here for all time to be concurrent, but he has also vaguely introduced the idea of either multiple dimensions or multiple universes when he says if there were more heavens than one so if we talk about multiverse okay now there could be multiple universes within the simulation if the simulation is the overarching thing that controls it all there could be multiple universes and so we're talking in theoretical physics they they allow for the idea of multiple physical universes and, uh, you know, so they, they kind of talk about it like a bubble universe, uh, for lack of, uh, you know, a better description of it. But basically, uh, each of these, you know, has their own physical properties, chemical makeups, these sorts of things. Um, some die out quicker than others because of you know, some, whatever chemistries involved, uh, nuclear forces, these sorts of things. So some might not have enough to even get started. Some might have too much and flame out too quickly. And then, you know, the Goldilocks zone and, you know, 
just right. And that's, and that's our universe. So there's a lot of things that have to happen, not just for, you know, our planet being in the Goldilocks zone of our sun for life to take shape here, but our universe has to have, you know, all the right uh, physical properties in order to even be going as long as it has 14 billion years. So that said, when Aristotle is talking about uh, more heavens than one, so he's talking about more than just, you know, the stars and, you know, the planets and things like this that we see in the sky. He's talking about beyond that. He's talking about some universe above our universe. He's talking about, he really couldn't put it into words at the time because they didn't really have those type of words for us, but he's talking about the simulation, the thing that governs and controls this. Um, and that would include time as well in, in his description here and his take on time. There are more heavens than one. The movement of any of them equally would be time. So it'd be many times at the same time. So in our ancient cultures and religions, they do talk about a simulation. But like with Aristotle here, he, he can't use that word. It's not a word that they really had. Um, they use different terms like the... Uh, you know, the ancient Hindus, they talked about the Maya, the illusion. So this is, you know, everything that is around us is the illusion. You know, even when you look at um, you know, Christianity, you know, they talk about, you know, we are down here preparing to go to the next world. They even have, you know, not too many, but a couple illustrations of things that happened before coming down here. And one could also make a case that a lot of those texts are lost. You know, when every time, anytime we found one, we're like, oh, hey, you know, that actually adds a lot to the story there. <laughs> um, yeah, there is a lot that we've lost to time. So, you know, the ancients knew the concepts. They just don't have the, the terminology that we use today. And years from now down the road, there will probably be an even different terminology that will be used to describe whatever it is that, is going on out there that you know, we've tried to make sense of it over the millennia you know heaven the afterlife the egyptians called it the duat you know as they left this world you know they headed off to the different parts of the soul uh headed off to the constellation of orion they knew that the the soul was leaving her here it was going off somewhere else uh, and they revered the constellation of orion Ancient alien theorists have uh, proposed that, well, maybe that's where we came from. That's where humans came from. Okay, maybe. Uh, but I also think that, well, for one, I do believe that humanity came from somewhere else. But aside from that, um, you know, they knew that the consciousness, the soul, you know, the stuff that's inside of us came from somewhere else. This, this world, this universe is not from where it originates. It is from somewhere else. And that universe experience time you know quite differently than we do which is why you know you're able to move in and out of it you know really at will you know if you take just you know if you want to take it as a bubble i mean usually i, I you know throw it out there as a stack stack time theory moving up and down the stack um here within 
within the simulation. But if you go outside of it, I'm knocking into the uh, microphone. If you go outside of it, yeah, not only can you, you can see the whole stack, of course, the whole thing is right there for you to look at and kind of go in at will. A couple of comments here. Um, yeah, Plato's allegory of the cave comes to mind. Um, yeah, the earth is an intelligent entity. It's bound to be really irritated. Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. And could be an argument for the Akashic Records. Yeah, yeah, uh, a little while ago when we were talking about that. Absolutely. So, um, so all right. I think that is going to wrap it up for this evening. I know this was a little bit of a different day for us to go live. We'll be back again next week, next Wednesday, uh, our normal time. And um, you know, we'll pick it up, of course, 8 o'clock p.m., connecteduniverseportal.com. See you all again next time, if time really exists. <laughs>